Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight, my guest is Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, many of you might remember him from Zeitgeist 3 Moving Forward. Um, Dr. Mate, welcome to the show. I know you prefer to be called by your first name, so Gabor, welcome to the show. Gabor, yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, um, since we're not going to have as much time as I originally thought, I, I guess um, let me go ahead and just let you introduce yourself quickly, and then we'll launch into the conversations about your books. All right. I'm a medical doctor in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm also an author of four books, uh, most recently in the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction, which is about addictions in general, and uh, based on my work in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is North America's most uh, notorious and concentrated area of drug use. My other books have to do with attention deficit disorder, which I have myself, with the mind-body unity in health and illness. That's entitled When the Body Says No. And finally, a parenting book, which I'll talk about later if there's time. Excellent. All right, well... um the first one, I guess, uh, I, I wanted to ask you that was something actually that came to mind that was a personal question. Is like I remember you talking about addiction in Zeitgeist Three. Um, now, is there still? I mean, I mean, I mean, you, obviously, the science would say that you know certain drugs like heroin or crack cocaine are are more dangerous as far as addiction than others, right? Well, not as dangerous as cigarettes. Hmm. Heroin is not as dangerous as cigarettes. You, you can live a life. You can be a lifelong opiate addict, and as long as you don't overdose. Uh, you can actually be a functioning citizen. Uh, tobacco smoke will kill you much more surely and much more miserably than, than opium will. Oh, of course. I guess I meant more along the lines of the, the chemical tendency to become addicted. Isn't it, isn't it more prevalent in that substance? Tobacco is much more addictive than, uh, than heroin. More people who try cigarettes become addicted than people who try heroin become addicted to that. I'm not recommending it. I'm just dealing with the scientific fact. Oh, no, no, that's fine. I was just curious. It's just that had been an understanding that I had of chemistry and things of that no, nature. There's, look, there's a whole lot of mythology on drugs. I mean, the first thing is that drugs, even the idea that drugs are addictive is nonsense when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most people who try most drugs never become addicted. I mean, you know, if opiates were addictive, then anybody who goes to the hospital and gets a morphine shot would become an addict. But, I mean, the vast majority of people don't. So... The issue is not the drugs so much as the susceptibility. Some people are susceptible to be addicted, and when they meet that potentially addictive substance, uh, they're hooked. Now, I'd say the most addictive drug from that perspective is crystal meth, which has got a very powerful effect, and, and you know it's highly addictive. But even then, the vast majority of people who try crystal meth, even repeatedly, don't become addicted to it. So you still have to ask, what is the susceptibility, not just what is the addictive potential of the drug? I see what you mean then. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, then that always comes with, like, you know, you get the, the, the questions people say, you know, like, you know, everybody goes through their experimental phase, but, you know, most people don't become addicted. And that's a very excellent point. And the ones that generally do become addicted, as we talked about in Z3, you know, tend to be people who come from, you know, abusive situations and, you know, that it makes them more, in, you know, inclined to be addicted. Well, that's just a fact, so that the large-scale population studies show that the greater adversity a person experienced in childhood, and by that I mean physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, or a rancorous divorce, uh, violence in the family, a parent being addicted, uh, uh, a parent being jailed, a parent dying, the, the more adversity there is like that, preponderantly, uh, so much is greater the addiction risk, in fact, exponentially so. So you can always trace addictions back to 
in the case of severe addictions, usually trauma, mild addictions, usually some significant emotional loss in childhood. And uh, that not only creates the pain that the addict is trying to soothe through the addictive behavior or substance, it also shapes the brain in certain ways to make that individual more susceptible to these substances. Right. Well, um, I guess to to make sure that I cover all of them, we'll you know I'll try to give at least try to give at least ten minutes of each one. Um, well, no, no, well, you don't need to do that. We can mm-hmm. I can come back some other time. I mean, you just you just talk about what you want to talk about. And, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Yeah. No, I just wanted to make sure that we shared it. But yeah, no, if you're willing to come back later, then that's fine. <laughs> no, you don't have to sell all my books all at once. You know, they're they're doing okay. Okay. Well, no, um, and uh, the funny thing is, is uh, my ex-wife actually, I, I brought her to the house today, and I insisted that she watch, you know, Zeitgeist Three to to look at you guys' information about, you know, how people were formulated, and you know, and she obviously suffered a great deal of child abuse when she was younger, and her mother, um, well, her mother is was not really in her right mind and was stressed pretty much throughout the pregnancy, and uh, it really impacted her to see you guys reveal all that stuff because it, it made some things click for her right. to understand why she was who she was. Yes. Um, and it, that, that information in particular, it, it really it changes you when, you when you're aware of these things. You know, it's just that, um, you know, that, that the, these things are formative. It certainly changes your impression as a parent. Um, you know, I, now I became very sensitive to the kinds of things I allow my children to be exposed to. I was already sensitive, but that's, you know, that information definitely made it worse. <laughs> how, old are, how old are your kids now? Um, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Yeah. Well, maybe I mentioned to you last week then, but then for sure you got to read another one of my books. It's called Hold On To Your Kids, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is about the fact that um, in this culture, see, children were never meant to be brought up the way kids are brought up today. The, the nuclear family, and especially not the broken nuclear family, was never the, the basic unit of chartering. The, right. the basic unit of chartering was always the village. That African saying expresses a deep truth. It takes the village. So that children had many nurturing adults to relate to. And uh, it wasn't a question of one generation of parents. It was multi-generational. Now, what's happened in our culture is that that village, that clan, the tribe, the community, the neighborhood, the extended family, it's all it's all being eroded and, uh, and fragmented owing to uh, the nature of post-industrial uh, capitalism. And 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 the, and the social changes that that it causes the destruction of neighborhoods and the the rise of the chains and the uh, the distances people have to travel to work and the uh, the loss of community and connection and and now children having a deep need to connect to somebody uh, they will connect to whoever's around and in our culture who's ever around for most kids for the most part is from early age on is other kids so our children become very much connected to other kids which makes the parents' job way too difficult because children resist adults in order to fit in with the peer group. And that process begins fairly early. It's quite insidious by the time it's, uh, kids are 8, 9, or 10, and it's almost hopelessly entrenched by the time they become teenagers. So then you have the current sense of disempowerment that a lot of parents have, all because we don't realize the importance of holding on to those attachments with our kids, and we think that... Uh, just the fact that we love them is enough. It's not enough. We also have to be around for them and be, stay connected with them and, and make sure that they don't get connected too early to the peer group, too early to the Internet, too early to the cell phone and the Twitter and all that kind of stuff, which are all modalities in which the kids stay connected to one another and cut the adults out of their lives. And that, so that's, 
crucial in our society. It's like we've we've lost the power to parent because we've lost the connection with our kids. That's actually something that we talked about in the previous attempt at the show before the technical problems that I, I wanted to bring up again was the the issue of how uh, we don't exactly um, like the way that our families are organized. It's also it's just the issue that your your kids are almost always in like school or they're in a daycare center or they're you know, because we have these these families where both parents are working all the time, you know, that's and right. and I usually tell them because they're you know that that comes up because we have people who are like, well, you know, well this person didn't have abusive parents, how did they develop their crazy violent tendencies? And I said, you know, <laughs> we end up letting our kids, you know, be watched by lots of different people over the course of their childhood. You never know, you know, what might have happened to them at one stage of the game that you're unaware of. You know, but mostly what it is when you look at those families is that you know there's no abuse in the home or anything, but 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 because the parents are too busy or too stressed, mm-hmm. kids get too hooked into other kids, and now you for the first time in history you've got immature creatures serving as the models for other immature creatures. You know, right. throughout throughout their course of development, and that's what you usually see in those families. So it's not always about abuse. Like it's abuse happens to some people, but. Uh, and I make this point in the documentary, that there are two things that can go wrong in childhood. One is when those things happen that shouldn't happen, and that's the abuse. But also when those things don't happen that should happen. And that's the attuned and consistent attention of the, of the adults in the kids' lives. So a child may not have been abused, but if the parents are too distracted by their own stresses, and if they lack the support, then these kids simply don't get what they need. And when you don't get what you need from one source, you'll attempt to get it from another. Do you think that might be the factor behind the, the Generation Xers, as they're called? This, this... That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that it's... makes perfect sense. Well, what, what, what we've got here is instead of the, the vertical transmission of culture and the gradual transformation of culture through the generations, now we have the horizontal transmission of culture uh, with disconnect from previous generations. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of talking about a generation as separate from, you know, the the uh, I mean, you, you never get that in an African village, you know, you have different ages, but they're not distinct cultural entities. I mean, they, they, they you know they'll they'll listen to the same music. Not not they won't listen to the same music. They'll sing the same music. They'll dance the same dances. Right, that's very true. And we've lost all that, and and, and the result is this very sterile, and of course. Uh, commercialized peer culture. I mean, you've got Justin Bieber. I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I always laugh about this. Justin Bieber is a 16-year-old who's this phenomenon, you know, and uh, he's taken seriously as a cultural icon, and he's written a book called My Life, the best-selling book of My Life. Now, can you imagine a 16-year-old writing a book called My Life? Who does that speak to? To 11-year-olds. To 11-year-olds. Right. You know? Yep. Now, uh, somebody in the chat room asked, uh, what do you think about the families who have five-plus children? Uh, what What do they mean? What do I think about them? I think they got a lot of kids. <laughs> so no specific, like, or any special interests that need to be done with that, I guess. You know, I mean, you always have uh, sibling look, rivalries it, and stuff. What, what, what really matters is not how many kids in a family, but how are those kids oriented? Are those kids well-entrenched in a secure, stable relationship with the parents? Or they left on their own a lot because the parents are too busy. That's the real issue for me. Not the number of kids. It's the orientation that matters and the connection with the adults, the, with healthy adults, that is. That, that's what makes the difference. So the number of children to me is, is secondary to 
the nature of the adult-child relationships in that family. You see, if if the kids are well-oriented towards the adults, then the older kids can help, um, you know, in a sense, mentor the younger kids, but in a healthy way. You know, one of my previous co-workers, actually, uh, we worked at the Renaissance Festival Joust together, and he had this little girl, um, and she was extremely articulate and extremely polite, and, um, you know, and I asked him, you know, what, what the story was, and I guess he works with uh, disabled children, so I asked him what his what his secret was, and he said, well, I, I talk to her like an adult. I don't baby talk her, and I don't, you know, I, he's like, I don't talk about inappropriate things to her, but... I don't really keep a lot of secrets from her unless I really have to. And I just, if she asks me questions, I give her direct and honest answers. And, you know, and it, it was amazing because I just, you, you talk to this little girl and she was like maybe six or something. And, you know, she was really, uh, she took good care of my little girl. That was, this was a while ago, you know, while they were there. And she just was, I mean, I remember at one point, you know, she said, you know, just a moment, please. You know, she was just so you know, eloquent and, you know, articulate about how she did that so that she could then say something to somebody else. And then she went back to talking to me. I don't know, just little things that you don't normally get out of somebody that age. And That's what it is. It's a question of who you're learning from. Like, if you learn from adults, you'll be a certain way. Now, you know, it's not just a question of how you talk to the kid formally. It's also what kind of an emotional relationship have you got. Does that kid feel enjoyed and, and, and welcomed and accepted? You know, that's the real issue here. And then, then, then I'll cling to you or cleave to you in a healthy way and then you will learn from them you know so uh it's a question of that relationship but the average adolescent today has got about 60 percent of the vocabulary of an adolescent 60 years ago because they're learning language from one another now right and immature creatures can only you know so then you have all these um all the phenomena of, of almost um uh inarticulate language you know, and and it's not because of stupidity or lack of intelligence. It's just because you, it's who you're learning from. Now, this little girl you're talking about was learning from adults. Right. Now, I have another question here. Somebody says, they I am studying psychopathology in college. How does your view of addiction and health relate to what is on the Diagnostic Statistical Manual? Well, as one uh, psychiatrist at UCLA said, the DSM deals in categories, not in pain. In other words, the DSM categorizes uh, conditions according to their symptoms, and it collects groups of symptoms and calls them diseases. But it doesn't look at the human experience behind those diseases or those conditions. So the DSM teaches you nothing about human beings. It might help you um, identify certain syndromes and, and describe them, but it'll tell you nothing about their causation. It doesn't even look at that. In other words, it doesn't look at the inner, only the outer. And it and it mistakes uh, it is and it, and it, it makes a very serious error. In medicine, there's a distinction between symptoms and signs. A symptom is what the person experiences. Like if you have pain, that's a symptom. If you have um, uh, a certain uh, uh, rash, that could be a symptom, but it could also be a sign. You know, so the sign is what you see. The symptom is what the person experiences. Now, the uh, the um, for example, if somebody has rapid speech, that could be a, sim- a sign of anxiety, but it's not a symptom unless the person experiences as as, uh, as unpleasant. You see the difference? Yeah. Now, the, the DSM completely confuses the two. It, it comes up with a bunch of signs. 
and sometimes it makes up uh, diseases out of them. They're not. They're just descriptions of certain behaviors. And the question always is, what is behind them? The DSM and, and general, psychiatry in general, unfortunately, these days, barely even begins to look at that issue. And it certainly doesn't look at it in light of human experience. So, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, so it's a tool, but it's a very limited one. And uh, they often talk about it being the Bible of psychiatry, but it's not a Bible. It's only the index to the Bible, you might say. Yeah, that's uh, ironically. If you were, if it was, uh, you know, Judaism, it would be the Talmud, which is the the company. No, no, the Talmud is more of a, a commentary and an explanation, an exploration. Hmm. Of what's in the sacred tradition, the the the, the DSM four doesn't comment on anything. It doesn't uh, explore anything. It just uh, collects data, or not even data. It collects signs and sometimes symptoms uh, into certain categorical. Uh, uh, what can I say? Well, certain categorizations. That's all it does. It categorizes. Oh, okay. Well, I'm certainly not an expert, although I do have a lot of Jewish friends. But um, in, in any case, uh, all right. Well, um, another person here they they wanted to know. Uh, I know we've talked about about this a little bit, but um, just your your views on the resource based economy model. Uh, look. Uh, people ask me that. I have to tell you that. That was news to me when I watched the film. I mean, I didn't know what I was being interviewed for. When PJ interviewed me, I didn't know I was being interviewed for a Zeitgeist film. I didn't know about Zeitgeist, either the movement or the previous films. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a surprise to me. So, the you know, the movie was uh, uh, a new experience for me, that, that whole idea. Uh, although it's not the first time I'd heard concepts similar to that. Now, look, uh, I got no problem with that at all. In fact, it makes obvious sense. Uh but it's sort of like what Gandhi said about Western civilization. Do you know that fa- that famous line by Gandhi? When he was asked what he thinks about Western civilization? And he mm-hmm. says, well, I think it would be a good idea. You know, And uh, it's the same as the resource-based uh, economy. It's a good idea. But the problem for me, politically and historically, is not to come up with good ideas. Like Karl Marx said, the problem is not to understand the world, but to change it. You know, And, and the thing is not... There, there, there are all kinds of ideal models we can come up with, but how do we achieve those models? What actually drives historical change? That's the real issue. So if I have a, a, a disagreement with the film, it's not in the uh, ideas that it uh, proposes. I mean, I, I don't care for the utopian prefab cities that the film pictured. That's not how, that's not how I think things happen, but 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 certainly the idea is that things should be based on resources, that we should not overextend our resources, either human or physical, uh, that, and, and all that. And, and, and then there needs to be a worldwide um, accounting for resources, and as much as possible it should be local. All those ideas, as far as I understand them, they're more than valid. They're the only way that humanity will survive. The real issue is how do we get there, and uh, what, what accounts for, in other words, what accounts for social change. Right. Well, um, I, I understand your criticisms there. Um, in any case, uh, the next question was, uh, how could you, what, basically, would you like to give commentary on the uh, the development of laughter in infants? How do you feel it, it manifests? <laughs> well, you just tickle them a little bit. <laughs> right. No, that's, yeah. 
So, you know, basically, it, um, I guess uh, the question I think he was getting at it was just uh, could it develop differently and, you know, in different... Um... Well, look, it, 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 laughter is a, a normal human expression of, 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 of glee and enjoyment and later on of the recognition of absurdity, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, infants who laugh, they laugh because they experience joy. And they experience joy because they're being enjoyed and because the parents around them are attentive and emotionally up themselves. So, and that's essential for the healthy development of the child. So I'm all in favor of laughter in children, or infants for that matter. But but what it is, it's a natural response. It's evoked by the environment. So for infants to laugh, their deep belly laugh, the environment has to be... uh, one that gives them joy. Excellent. Well, um, I guess uh, to comment further then, um, I'm trying to remember, because we had a lot of gems during the last show. We talked a little bit about uh, how my learning disabilities that I have probably formed due to the, the stress when I was a baby um, from being a, you know having open-heart surgery, things of that nature, and yeah. uh, how I had confirmed with you that my, my heart surgeon, for example, had gone into the ward and made sure that all of the kids were played with because he said there were a lot of parents there that were scared it was almost like they didn't want to become attached to their children because they didn't know if they were going to survive. And um, I remember we talked a little bit about that and then the issue of, like, you know, babies that are not held will die. I, I've seen that same thing uh, mimicked in in, a, in nature. Like a baby bird can fall out of a nest at a very young age and not die from the fall, but they still end up dying pretty quickly afterwards, even without exposure or predators. Um, I mean, do you do you feel that that's that's reflected in nature as well? Well, I mean, look, uh, I'm not sure what to say to that. The 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 the, the bird who falls out of a nest just isn't nurtured, that it isn't fed, isn't uh, mm-hmm. kept warm, and all that. So, I mean, it'll die. The human infant could be fed and kept warm, but if it's not picked up, it'll still die, simply because babies need touch in order to thrive, and and without touch. They, they stress themselves to death. And that's, that was shown in orphanages in, in the beginning of the last century. Uh, in uh, in uh, the uh, the last communist dictator of Romania, Ceausescu, had forbidden abortions. So as a result, a lot of kids were being born whose parents were simply too poor to look after them. So they ended up in these terrible orphanages. And so they were picked up very little. And when they did tests on the stress hormone level of these infants and these young kids, they were very, very high. So these kids were stressed, very stressed from that lack of contact. Incidentally, when they did stress uh, hormone levels on, uh, in American uh, kindergartens, they found the same thing. Except in those kindergartens where there was a good adult-to-child ratio and relationship. Right. So when, when children don't get the, atten- the attention they need, they're stressed. And stress is not just a emotional thing; it's a physical thing. Their their stress hormones are actually elevated. That has an impact on their physical health. Well, um, another question from the uh, the audience in the chat room: uh, What do you feel is the best way to deal with anxiety? Well, uh, the best way to deal with anything, first of all, is to understand what it's about. Now, when you look at what anxiety is and and where it happens in the brain, the structure in the brain that um, mediates uh, anxiety is called the amygdala. 
The amygdala is also where we experience attachment relationships. And the two basic emotions that people experience are fear and love. In other words, fear is very close to love. In other words, our biggest fear is the loss of our attachments. Why is that? Because as infants, we simply don't survive without attachment. Therefore, the two emotions are, are experienced in, in the very same brain center. And anxiety in an adult or a child is always an imprint of early troubled attachments. So there, when I treat somebody with anxiety, uh, there's two things I need to know. What is What happened in their childhood and infancy? And what's going on right now that's triggering that old alarm bell to go off again? Now, when you when you're dealing with stuff like that, because I've I've had to you know deal with like my own issues like about problems that I had with my father and things of that nature, and I started to be able to recognize the warning signs and then take uh, precautions accordingly to ensure that you know any of my past experiences with my father did not hinder my ability to communicate with people. Yeah. You know, and um, it but it was never the funny thing is is it was never a cure in so much as it was just more of a matter of I am aware I have this problem. And therefore, I, I look for the warning signs, and then I recognize, okay, I'm I'm not going to be at my best right now, so it would be best that I, you know, take precautions accordingly. You know, that's... Um, well, you know what Jesus said? He said that what you bring out of yourself will save you. Mm-hmm. Once you bring it out of yourself, once you can see it, you begin to have a choice in the matter. Until you see it, it's just automatic, ingrained behavior and, and, and a stimulus response. So... Seeing it doesn't immediately get rid of it, but it puts you in a position to deal with it in the present rather than being controlled in the past. So, I mean, it's a big question. How do you deal with anxiety? And there's many approaches. But to me, it it has to, at some point, go to the heart of what it's really all about. And to me, if if you come in with anxiety, I'd, I'd have a pretty incisive conversation with you about what's happening right now in your life and what's being triggered there. Because it's never about nothing. It's just about something that you might not be consciously aware of. That's yeah. That's actually the more I look at it now, especially when it comes to issues about uh, childhood and such. Um, yeah, you know, is that they that people are not aware of where it comes from, and that was one of the the critical questions that I had. You know, basically when I was talking to my ex-wife, uh, having watched your your stuff and Sapolsky's stuff from the film, yeah. was you know it, she knows she, she knows what she remembers from her childhood. But she has, you know, and what we talked about, the kind of person no, her no, mother no. was. No, she doesn't. Oh, well, no. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. That's what we were getting at, was the stuff that happened before she remembered it. And that's when she, we no. thought about what kind of person her mother was and what it would have been like to be a baby. And yeah. she was horrified at the idea now that she's really thought about what she doesn't remember. Right. Well, the fact that she does remember it, uh, I'm playing with words here, but there are two kinds of memory, you know, and there's the... Um, See, if I called you a bad name right now, mm-hmm. how might you respond? What would be your emotional response? If all of a sudden I just turned on you in this telephone conversation? People would get defensive. How would you, how would you feel? Um, I guess it would depend on what you said. I think we asked this question oh. last time, actually. <laughs> if I turned harshly on you right now, if I said something dismissive or critical of you, how, how would you feel? What would I- you imagine? Uh, I'd probably be defensive. Well, that's your response. What would the feeling be there, though? Well, it, it, those sorts of things usually bring up an amount of anxiety in a person. Um, okay, fair enough. All right. Now, but when you think about it rationally, 
why would it bring up anxiety? I mean, you don't know me. You'll never see me again. I'm, we're on the telephone or on, on the Skype. You're not in any danger from me. What about that would trigger anxiety for you? No, no. I recognize that in the in reality. No, and, and I've applied those things to myself. I agree with you absolutely. I was kind of trying to give you a generic answer, but no, 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 no that's fine. I know, mm-hmm. and, and and I'm dealing with that answer. Mm-hmm. What I'm actually saying is that anxiety would be a memory for you, or some authority figure being critical of you and turning on you. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't recall it, the emotional memory is there, and that's what gets triggered. So what I'm saying about your wife, the ex-wife, that is, that. If she wants to know what her memories are, she doesn't have to try and recall what happened. All she has to do is see what her emotional reactions are when she's upset. Those are all memories. Because the, the, the imprint of early emotional experiences become programmed into our brains long before we have recall. In short, and I think I may have talked about this in the film, I don't remember, but there are two kinds of memory. Uh, recall memory and then that emotional memory, for which there may not be recall, but which predates even the development of recall. So I can always tell what a person's first year and a half was like just by how they react. Well, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but thankfully, you know, you agreed to come back on at another, you know, at a later date. Um if you have a moment to talk off the air after I close this segment, I'd like to, you know, discuss a few things with you. Um sure. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio. Please visit my website, vradio.org, v-radio.org. And, not, to, um, not, to, not to mention my website. Oh, yes. I was just getting to that. <laughs> go ahead and give, give it to him. You go ahead. Oh, well, um, it was uh, – actually, I've got it sitting right here. Um, www.drgabormate, all one word, .com. I'm going to drop it in the uh, chat again for you folks. Thanks again for tuning in to V-Radio.